I think I'm having an art attack. What's up, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Art Attack with your host, art historian, very, 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 very bright human being, Lizzie Dastin. Although I just saw you on television the other day, and they did a misspell, and they said Lazy <laughs> Dastin. Can we only refer to me as Lazy Dastin? No, because you were completely the antithesis of Lazy, which I thought was hilarious. <laughs> I was like, lazy, Dastin, that is a messed up, because, I mean, people say Justin Boa or Jason Boa or Justin Boe or Bois, but, you know, like, people mess that up, but I don't, I think I've seen misprints like Jason Boa, but lazy is, that's, you know what that is? That's an autocorrect thing. It must have been, because people don't call you Jerkface Bua or <laughs> Jason no. and Justin. Yeah. Those Slacker are Slacker Bua. Procrastinator Bua. Okay, guys. Anyway, so Lazy and Jerkface. Yeah. Are, Jesus are Christ. Hosting. You're giving me a name right away? I'll take it. Let's, I was just thinking, what's a name with a, or a word with a J? Yeah. We're going to give a big shout out to CAA, which is not Creative Artists Agency, but rather College Art org, And they are awesome. They are the best. And uh, they're founded in 1911. It's the world's largest support organization for all the professionals in the arts. In fact, Lizzie herself is speaking. When are you speaking for them? I am. I'm speaking romantically on Valentine's Day. Mm. And their annual conference this year is going to be in Manhattan. And it's February 13th through the 16th. And tons of art historians are going to be there. Mm -hmm. I think about 300 of us. And we're going to be sharing our innovative research. And there are tons of different conference sessions. So I hope that you guys all check it out. I would love to see you in New York. And thank you so much to CAA for the support. Yeah, registration is now open for their 107th annual conference in New York. And it's going to be February 13th to the 16th, coming up in 2019. Anyway, today, guys, we are talking about the wonderful, wonderful painter, Winslow Homer. Uh, Winslow Homer is, is one of my favorite painters. And if you don't know his work, please take a pause, push pause, Google Winslow Homer, because there are definitely works that you will know. He was born in 1836. He died in 1910. He was an American painter and primarily painted... Uh, much like, I would say, Millet and Van Gogh, he painted a lot of peasants. He painted a lot of work that was very social, the common people. But what strikes me about Homer uh, was that he was just one of those artists who painted very simply. This is from a technical point, point of view. Like, I look at his work, and I am shocked by the simplicity of it and the beauty of it. His understanding of light really felt like light. I mean, very few painters to me are able to capture uh, what he captured so eloquently and so beautifully that every time I see uh, Homer at a museum or 
even if I come across it on the computer or just in a book, I, I kind of always get reminded of, oh, yeah, he's one of the greatest of all time. He's really a goat. I mean, and what I also love about him is that, in my opinion, very few people are phenomenal at watercolors. There's great acrylic painters and oil painters, but watercolor art is a whole thing. You, you think of watercolor art, you think of the greats like Andrew Wyeth. I mean, what a wonderful watercolor artist, although a lot of that was egg tempera. But John Singer Sargent, Zorn, these are some guys who just, like there's some Russian guys today who are just like phenoms at watercolor, but Winslow Homer's up there. Winslow Homer has to be one of the greatest watercolor artists of all time. And one of the greatest painters of all time. He's one of those guys who brought composition, design, technique, and emotional pathos all together in a new, under a new lens. And that's what made him so great. He, he brings everything together and became his own artist. Very rare. And that lens is really the Civil War and the aftershocks of that. And when you mention Millet, that is a great comparison because Millet and Courbet and Daumier, they were the three big pillars of realism in France. Mm -hmm. And what sparked their interest in peasants and working class was really the release, the the publishing of the Communist Manifesto by Karl Marx in 1848. Mm. And that manifesto was so empowering to the proletariat and this was reflected in the paintings by these French guys because when the expectation of art was to paint something that was historically significant or spiritually significant to suddenly paint peasants that Mm -hmm. was a huge attack at the bourgeois and similarly although this happens Decades later in America, the end of the Civil War was a deeply fracturing time for this country. And in an era of slavery ending and then that launching Reconstruction, Winslow Homer was trying to understand this new society, this new world. And he did that through the use of his realist paintings. Mm -hmm. And what's so interesting about that is that there are these two distinctive factions in American art at this time. One side, you also mentioned John Singer Sargent. He would be in one group where these people, because of the Civil War and all of the upset that it caused, they moved abroad and they expatriated themselves. And even though we still define them as American, like Mary Cassatt and Whistler and John Singer Sargent, they just didn't want to be here anymore. They wanted to identify with the gentility of Europe. And then we have other guys who are just zooming in on an American community, American experiences, and painting in not an avant-garde way, but in painting in a really narrative and very clear, precise manner. And those Mm -hmm. are the two big people are uh, Thomas Aikens and Winslow Homer. Mm -hmm. And so he is completely a product of his time. And many of the themes of his paintings are about understanding the world as it has irrevocably shifted. And he also does a lot of man versus nature and mm. something oh gorgeous. His, yeah, that's that's the stuff that takes him that's his evolved, sophisticated work that just kind of took him to another dimension. Um, but yeah, on on the reconstruction tip, uh, there's one painting that I want to mention. And this is this is a, a beautiful painting. It's called A Visit 
from the old mistress, which is like this encounter with this white lady who obviously was a slave owner and these four freed slaves. And um, you could see even a little child there. And the formal equivalence between the standing figures suggests a balance, I'm reading this, that the nation hoped to find in the difficult years of Reconstruction. And he did this while he was traveling, and he did this on when he was in Virginia. And you could just see here that the slaves are looking at her like, now what, bitch? You know what I mean? Like, we are, we're free. And it's a different reality for everybody. And he captured it, and he captured it. it it's, it's, it's one of those pieces where you look at it, you're like, oh, damn. Like that moment, that was heavy. And you could feel the heaviness in his work. And you feel the heaviness with the tonality of his work too. It's very somber. Uh, it's painted with a lot of umbers and sepias and a very restricted palette. And Homer, I feel, kept the palette restricted because he painted this in 1876. So he was already 40 years old at this point. So he was... And let me just say for a second that he was not a technical virtuoso. He became a way more trained painter just by painting and painting and painting and painting. He put his 10,000 hours in. And that's how he became great. You know, you could see the struggle in his work. But he really also, he was a full, uh, was a full spectrum kind of painter where he, he thought about the emotional quality of, of, the, of, the, of the characters. You know, he thought about the the actual garb of the characters. He thought about the actual color palette of what would theatrically enhance this scene. Because as a painter, you're a director, and you're the costume designer, and you're the production designer, and you're the lighter. You know, you're lighting everything with light logic. And you also have an, an emotional agenda that you are trying to communicate or at least provoke sure. using your painting you're, as the evidence. You're and, writing the script. Yeah, exactly. So you have an, a reason for writing the various script that you do. And you mentioned that beautiful haunting painting in the Reconstruction era. And one that I'd love to talk about in the same vein is called A Veteran in a New Field. Because he's not just talking about how the Civil War affected slaves and slave owners, but also how it affected the thousands of men who returned after having survived this gruesome, bloody war. The Civil War was actually the first modern war in its scale of loss. And this painting, I just think, is incredibly evocative because critics are so torn in how they discuss it. And typically, art historians say that it's really positive. So I'll just describe it briefly. There is a solitary veteran, we know that only because of the title, whose back is to the viewer and he's sheathing wheat. And the wheat is gold and it's abundant and the eye line is right around where his head is. And so you see a little bit of sky and a little bit of the wheat that's mm -hmm. already been sheathed. Yeah. And so the positive, the things that critics often talk about, they say that the color palette is just so golden mm -hmm. and it just echoes the beautiful era that Americans are entering into. And another thing that's positive is that he's a veteran. And so he survived 
and he has limitless wheat that he gets to work in. And so he's going to have a job for a really long time. And Mm. so this is the general consensus about the painting. And why I wanted to talk about this is that I think that this work is so sinister. Mm. It is deeply pessimistic to me because despite the color palette of the scene, the wheat is almost suffocating the veteran. And he has a lot of work. And so that's good because he's going to be provided for for a while but this labor is never ending. And it almost feels like this crest of work is going to subsume his body entirely. Hmm. Also, we don't see his face. And so we have no specificity of his personality. He's just faceless, nameless. The only identity he has is the identity of being a veteran. And now his humanity has been stripped along with with everything else and the wheat field at the time people would have gotten this reference in a way that is lost today but some of the worst most gruesome battles of the civil war were fought in wheat fields and so he even though he survived the war he cannot escape those memories and then the final thing is that the scythe that he's holding you'll notice it only has one prong and in an underdrawing you can see that Homer originally painted it with seven, seven blades, which would have been a modern tool. Mm. And then the veteran would be able to till the wheat seven times faster. And so why, getting back to that agenda, what is Homer's agenda in eliminating the modernity of the tool and turning it into this archaic scythe? And I think it's twofold. On the one hand, it just emphasizes the relentlessness of the labor, that he is going to be there forever. And also, a scythe has this visual symbolism of the grim reaper. And so once again, there is this inescapability of death. Whew, sorry, I'm yeah, tired. That was that, no, that was, that, <laughs> that was deep. No, that was deep because I'm looking, I, as Lizzie is describing this, I'm actually looking at the painting. And everything she says just rings true to me. So that was really a brilliant analysis. And I'm looking at it also from a compositional point of view. And you have, you know, all these warms, like you said, all the gold of the fields. But then you have a like this strip of the horizon. And it's this beautiful cold blue. As Winslow Homer does this, he really applies these uh, these layers very thinly. It seems like the cold is in there very thinly as where there's parts of the uh, there's parts of the field that are very opaque. Oftentimes artists will paint the lights very opaque and paint the darks very thinly because it gives the illusion of light refracting on the lights. You know, Rembrandt did it a lot. You could see how opaque he painted when he painted these portraits, right? It was just refracting light off of his forehead and his nose, where other areas that were darker are just thin washes, just glazes almost. So... Homer uses these uh, very classical techniques to achieve these very emotional and profound moments, like Lizzie stated. Uh, The other painting that I think we have to talk about is Breezing Up Fair Wind, which was done in 73 to 76. I guess he took a long time to do that painting. Uh, But you see this one right here? Uh, I'm bringing it up for Lizzie to to show. But, I mean, this is just... You know, it's so difficult to explain how intense it is to compose something unique 
the way that the sail breaks the diagonal of the picture frame, the way that the clouds also create another diagonal and then bring you back in with another boat in the horizon. Look up breezing up fair air. And you could see that the, the direction of the waves, if you really follow the energy, your eye is continually moving. The way that the three figures also create another diagonal going from bottom left to top right. I mean, this is a this is something that has been you know very worked out, very thought. I mean, he thought a lot about it. Composition, we always come back to composition. Like, there's great painters, there's great artists, but there's very few artists that are phenomenal compositionalists. And I think that Winslow Homer is a phenomenal compositionalist, and that's a very difficult thing to achieve. On top of that, uh, you know, his palette. You could feel that day. You could feel the crisp sun cascading over the sail how choppy the water is how but yet how beautiful you could almost like feel that air you know what i mean you could feel the air on your skin you could feel the wetness on your skin and and then once again very few artists are able to be you know to to catch the spirit of the temperature you know he caught that temperature i know what time of day it is. I know how cold it is. I know how warm it is. I know how wet it is. That's a that's a huge thing to actually achieve as an artist. Oh, absolutely. But also this theme, this trope of man versus nature is something that is epic, but also there's something very local about it for Americans because in the beginning of the history of our our culture of this country, Artists were really always comparing themselves to Europe because Europe had this history that we are never going to be able to reflect in our own community. And so what do we have that is distinctive? And what that is is the character of the land. And so artists, once they really articulated this difference, they start to invest a lot of energy into landscapes. And so then there's a group called the Hudson River Painters, and they start painting with such a spiritual devotion to the land in the 1800s, the early 1800s. And Homer, in my opinion, he picks up that tradition when he does these seascapes. And there's always this power dynamic between man and nature. And the painting that you just analyzed, I really think that dynamic is harmonious, that nature and man can peacefully coexist. And Homer didn't always have that point of view. And there are a few of his paintings. Uh, the one that comes immediately to mind is one called The Lifeline that is much more of a chaotic exchange between man and nature. So what he's depicting in this, this painting is actually a contemporary event that he saw on the news. And this woman, she fell off a steamship and she was being rescued. And so he's painting an epic moment in the rescue. And something that I find highly successful about this work is that on the top, so we see the two characters, the male hero who is in the process of rescuing her. We see this female victim who has fallen into the freezing water. She's unconscious. And we see this lifeline. And the lifeline, we know psychologically or rationally, it's tethered by two boats, a boat on the left, a boat on the right. 
but Homer crops the composition so that we don't see those anchors. All we see is this precarious rope that seems seconds away from plunging the people into this violent ocean. And this one reminds me of the veteran in a new field because the hero, the veteran in that case, and the rescuer in this case is faceless. And the woman's scarf, it blows pretty comprehensively over his face. And so we don't get to see the hero. We don't get to celebrate him. It's really this, this faceless act of heroism. And so in that respect, Homer is not a sentimental painter. He's painting dramatically, mm-hmm. but he's not sentimentalizing his subjects. Yeah, his his work really brings me to Howard Pyle and N.C. Wyeth, you know, the, the Brandywine school guys who were just these thematic narrative painters of action. There was a lot of action here. And as you can see, the water, once again, I mean, what a bold composition. You know, the lifeline is going from diagonally across from the top left all the way to the top right, but a little bit lower. It's, it's still on a diagonal. The ocean is coming from the bottom left all the way up. It's like this earthquake of water shifting. And you, I'm painting water right now, and I'm trying to make the water exciting. And let me tell you, it's difficult. You know what I mean? This is not, ladies and gentlemen, this painting right here is not an easy task to paint this water out of your head. He doesn't have like, you know, reference of the ocean going insane and cracking open. He's making this up. There is no way you can do studies from life of this. He doesn't have a you know, he's not, he doesn't have Google where he could just do this. We're talking about something is incredibly difficult to paint out of his head, but yet he does it with such intelligence and such beauty. You can feel the violent storm in the ocean. The ocean is just breaking open and these people are hovering right above it. In fact, you can see his foot and her leg in the water. God damn it. You just found my favorite moment in this painting. Because it's like almost going to envelop them and swallow them up. It is so subtle and brilliant. And we all have that experience where we are dragged down by water because water is so heavy. And Mm -hmm. so if you are trying to move quickly, if you're on a boat and you stick your hand in, you're going to feel that, that momentum, that inertia. And that moment where Homer... He just dips one of the the men. It's the man, right? He or maybe it's both. It's both of them. It's but both. his, it's 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 basically his foot and her leg. So you know, it's both of them can be at any time swallowed up. Exactly. And so he maximizes the tension. Do they get saved? Does the lifeline? break. Do they get saved? Yeah, they do. Okay, and they we do. know that okay. historically, but we don't know that through the painting. And so he is able to create this fever pitch of drama yeah. using very simplistic visual language. Yeah, he's a he is a really he's a really great director. There's another painting uh, I'd like to talk about called The Fog Warning, which is once again man on a boat, the horizon is the sea is very choppy. It's very dark and brooding. And there's a fog. You could see that there's a storm in the background on the horizon. 
And the storm is really weird because there's almost this tornado energy that's happening in the top right of the screen. And beyond that, beyond that, there's hope. There's a feeling of salvation. And once again, it's this struggle of man and nature. And the man is looking at the fog, this ominous fog coming as he's rowing the boat. And there's these two gigantic fish. It looks like tuna. I don't know. Halibut. Is it halibut? Yeah. How do you know that? I just do. Okay. (laughs) And there's these two giant halibut in the boat. And it's like he's taken from the sea, but maybe the sea is going to take him. And he knows that. He can see that. Now, this is done when Homer has become an excellent draftsman. He's become an extraordinary painter. This is the different Homer than we see earlier. Earlier, you know, we look at Homer, and some of his figures feel stiff. Some of his comp- some of his color is, you know, his color is actually always pretty incredible. Um, but, but his figures are definitely, he's one of those artists that's getting better and better and better and better as he gets older. He's not okay with being like, oh, cool, I'm good, I'm good with the style. I'm going to do that. No, he just keeps growing and growing and growing. And even with that, the critics out there, or, you know, when he, when he switches to watercolor, or he likes to, you know, he loves watercolor, and he starts doing watercolor stuff. One critic actually said, so this shows you, no matter who you are, what level you're at, you always have the haters. One critic says, this looks like a child with an ink bottle could not have done worse. And another critic said, listen to this, another critic said that Homer made a sudden and desperate plunge into watercolor painting. A sudden and desperate plunge. This guy is one of the greatest watercolor painters of all time. He has a freshness and an authenticity that's just really unparalleled. And you know what I think motivates critics to be so diminishing of Homer? I think it's because, and I fall into this trap too, if you are not an avant-garde painter, then critics think that you're regressive, that what you're doing is not special. Or you're and, an illustrator. Yeah, and, and that being true. said, let's take a beat to acknowledge the fact that Homer did do illustration. Homer was an illustrator. So was Howard Pyle. So was N.C. Wyeth. But that does not, does not mean that they cannot be a great fine art painter. This guy painted. This was America. Yeah, it was America in the sea. It was America in the fields. But it was America. Yeah, exactly. And you've really helped me with that because my tendency is to support and celebrate whatever is most cutting edge. And in Homer's day, that would be the work of Whistler, of Cassatt, of John Singer Sargent. And that is valuable. And those people do create one aspect of the story. But Homer and Aikens, they tell the other aspect, the much more locally resonant aspect too. And just because something isn't avant-garde doesn't mean that he didn't have the capability of painting that way. He just decidedly chose not to. He wanted to paint a an American experience and this conflict of man versus nature or in the Civil War paintings, man versus man and the subtle resonance that emerges from those inquiries. And so he needed narrative painting to do that because if you're painting art for art's sake, like Whistler did, then there's just too much ambiguity. And Homer did not paint that way on its surface because he wanted the ambiguity to be the more psychological one, that sort of tension, not the visual. And finally, I think we're going to talk about the Gulf Stream. Yeah, this is another one that is part of the theme of Man versus Nature and that moment of, is it hopeless, is it not? 
And the Gulf Stream is a pretty stunning example of something that looks hopeless because we have, once again, choppy waters. And this man, this this African-American man, is stuck alone on a boat. The rudder has broken. He seems to have abandoned all hope. There are sharks encircling the boat. We see this blowhole in the back. And so he could die from a multitude of ways. And so really it looks like he has just completely resigned himself to his fate. We don't see him scrambling to get anywhere like we do in the, the fog horn, uh, the one that you mentioned, but there still is a little sliver of hope in this painting in the far, far background on the left, we see a steamship Mm. and You may not see it immediately. We don't know whether the man stuck on the boat even is aware of the presence of this boat, but he could be saved. And so there is that that push and pull between something that is on its surface seemingly desperate and then something that could still lead to salvation. Yeah, this is another, you know, the the figure even looks slightly cartoony in a way. There's a certain, you know, aspect of uh, the painting that, is completely uh, fiction and just a narrative. Once again, he's painting the narratives, and he's he's. You could this could be an illustration, but it could also be a painting, and I feel like it fits in both categories. And and many artists, it's not as realistic and representational as breezing up fair, uh, breezing up fair wind or the fog warning, but it still has the power and the the impact of desperate, hopeless, and yet hopeful struggle of nature, struggle of man, the power of the unknown, the ocean, the unknown. We don't know what's going to happen. Yeah, the violence of nature, too. Oh, God, the violence is just... And once again, the palette, this restricted palette where he's working in earth tones and everything is harmonized to this one part of the day, you could still feel the time of day. You could still feel the temperature. You could still feel the emotional energy of the painting and the hunger of the sharks. So, you know, in closing, I think Winslow Homer, if you talk about one of the greatest artists of all time, you talk about an artist who is always getting better. He's created many masterpieces. He's not a one-hit wonder, you know? He's not. He's a guy who's done many paintings at a very high level that hit you in a classical way, that hit you in an emotional way, that hit you in a in a way where you just feel like, "Wow, this guy is this this guy is the real deal." He's the real deal. And he had his finger on the pulse of the contemporary moment, and that is something that I don't think can be overstated, is that this was such a pivotal, scary, chaotic time for this country, and his work is reflecting that ambiguity. He is our American Manet. He's our American Millet, even. I mean, I think Jean-Francois Millet is one of the greatest painters also of all time. And Courbet, too. I think that actually Courbet is the best comparison for him because Courbet was the most overtly political. And I think in Homer's work on the Civil War that shows a decidedly political tenor to it. But yeah, I would I would feel comfortable comparing him to Millet too. No, I mean, but I think he was a I think he was a greater <laughs> this is a really crazy thing to say, but 
a greater compositionalist than Millet, uh, a greater compositional, uh, a, a greater not only composer, but he used color. He, he, you know, Millet was very restricted with his palette as well, but I think ultimately uh, just his watercolors show how much of a virtuoso he became with composition and with color as well. Because oftentimes, and my teacher says, you, my old teacher, Glenn uh, Vilpu, once told me that you can, you can play just a little bit of the piano, just this, this section of the piano, but that should be based on choice, not limitation. You should be able to play the whole piano if you want to. And that's what, that's what Homer did. He was able to hit on all levels because he had the technical ability to do whatever he want, whenever he wanted. And he controls the way we think about his works. Powerful stuff. Peace.